Hey there. Thank you so much for being a part of our Big Time Talker podcast family. I'm Burke Allen on the road this week, back in my home state of West Virginia to record the show. Thank you to our show sponsor, SpeakerMatch.com, the world's largest online virtual speakers bureau. If you are a platform speaker or maybe you're a meeting planner and you're needing speakers to fill those slots, you can find one another at SpeakerMatch.com. Our guest today is a speaker, but she's also an author and an entrepreneur. As a matter of fact, she calls herself a vaginpreneur. So that's kind of an interesting twist on things. Um, She spent over uh, 25 years now uh, growing some of the biggest brands and businesses in the female health and wellness world. She's co-founder and principal of a company called Sparks Solutions for Growth. Say hi to Rachel Ron Sherl, Rachel, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You've got a, a book that <laughs> I love the title. There's lots of double entendres. Yes, there are. Uh, orgasmic uh, leadership, profiting from the coming surge in women's sexual health and wellness. So you do it with a wink and a nudge. But as I read about you, you have been fighting the good fight <laughs> for women's health for a long time. And frankly, as a guy, I was pretty clueless that there was ever a problem in getting the word out about women's health and sexuality. Yes. And while we're making great progress, um, unfortunately, there still is. So going back to the book, uh, it really was all born from an experience I had running a company that improved arousal, desire, and satisfaction for women. And we went to 100 different media outlets and 95 said no. And when I say that, I mean, no, we won't take your money for advertising. And you had a lot of money, right? You're not just saying, oh, I've got 50 bucks. Yeah, here's $1.25. Can you put me on air? Um, But we went to cable, network, radio, website, and 95% said no. So I started speaking about the issue really as a way to earn media as opposed to pay for it. So if I couldn't buy it, we were gonna make it a PR story, which is what we did. And in the course of doing that to help grow the business with my um, business partner, it seemed that I was pretty good at it. I liked it. I like to tell stories. I, I love the energy of an audience. And so I kept doing it. Um, really, again, it started as a response to a business challenge and then just became you know, a revenue stream and a way to continue to learn and to interact with people in the space. And over the course of doing that, I was writing articles for Huffington Post and, and Inc. Just, you know, my interpretation of things that were happening, you know, in the world socially that had some impact on women's health, sexual, reproductive, whatever the particular issue was. And a bunch of people said, I think you have a story. So I said, okay, put it in the back of my mind. And I was sitting at a conference one day next to this woman who I met once in person, but we became fast friends um, by the name of Karen Kahn. And she said, Rachel, everybody talks about entrepreneurship and leadership. It's so boring, you know, the topic over and over again. Why don't you talk about it in the context of the work that you do? What about talking about orgasmic leadership? And, you know, I give all credit to her every time and in the book. Uh, so I said, oh my God, that's the greatest name I've ever heard. But you know, the J and J's of the world are not inviting me to speak and advertising a topic called orgasmic leadership, but I always kept it in the back of my mind. And then, you know, months later, a year later, it occurred to me that it could be the name of a book. 
So I reached out to 10 people in the space that I'd been working in for a while. And I said, can I do a very, very structured interview with you um, talking about your experience in women's health, whether you come at it as an investor, an entrepreneur, an academic, a healthcare practitioner. Long story short, I wound up doing three dozen and I turned it into a business book where really it's focused on the existing trends that businesses were looking at and capitalizing on to build businesses in a space which has some built-in barriers, systemic, systemic, economic, cultural. And so that was where the book came from. And it started sort of a decade long of having conversations with people in the space and you know, starting a podcast and really using it as a way to learn and listen and connect and be energized about all the energy and activity that's in the space that I've been fortunate enough to work in and grow businesses in for a long time. And and this has led you now to to appear on you know Nightline and uh, CBS News and MSNBC and the New York Times. I could go on and on. Forbes and you talked about the Huff Post and and CNN, but it it was really something that was born out of necessity because these advertisers. Uh, advertising mediums wouldn't take your money to advertise the product. And, and I think that was the real head scratcher for me. Um, and, and so I'd love to, to talk to you a little bit about that. Uh, you know, we see forever and yep. a day, if you're a guy, <laughs> uh, ads for Viagra and Cialis and Levitra. I mean, they're everywhere. But you had a, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, Rachel, but you had a product that was similar to that, but was targeted to the female space that nobody would touch. Yes, it, that's that's primarily accurate. So, you know, we've seen ads on CBS during the Super Bowl for Viagra, which, you know, is perfectly fine. For my, years, my, my, for my, years. My feeling, and we, you know, they created the vernacular, you know, a four-hour erection, which was never really part of our, you know, our common conversation, but now it is. Yeah. Um, that, that was prescription. Ours was um, really regulated as a cosmetic, which means, you know, it didn't have pharmaceutical active ingredients in it. We had done a clinical test. We had proved no drug-drug interactions. We had statistically significant results. And we did go to the networks and the, and the, and the cable stations and say, what gives? Well, we're nervous that people will complain and that our, you know, our affiliates that are you know, owned and operated by someone else, that they'll complain which was just so interesting because if you look at the history of those products being advertised, you know, they saved the network advertising industry for sure. And they elicited tons of complaints from lots of people. So my perspective has always been, I am so fine with standards and holding people to a, a threshold of behavior and requirements. Just if you're going to have those, apply those equally. That's all. So you want to keep promoting Viagra, Levitra, and Cialis? That's great. You can do it at 5 p.m. on CBS during the Super Bowl, and we can't do it at 8.30 p.m. on Lifetime when I'm pretty sure no 12-year-old boys are, are watching shows there. So it's always really been, it's not they shouldn't be able to do it. It's really more about- Why can't everybody do it? Yeah, and really there are a bunch of societal things. I mean, in, in this country, for sure, people come from different backgrounds, different cultures, different religious um, belief systems. So there's lots of different ways to think about sex and to talk about sex. And, and we have to respect that. 
and that's fine. And it doesn't mean everybody has to want to see this kind of content. But what our position was and what my position still is, is give people the choice as to what content they want to consume. Don't tell them that they that this is content they cannot consume because you've decided it so. You came from uh, a background with Johnson and Johnson, so yeah. you know very old school pharmaceutical company. Um, and maybe I've just got my head in the sand a little bit here, but <laughs> but were you surprised that these executives were saying, "Oh no, no, we can't do that"? Well, I was I was stunned, and there are a couple reasons. I had. Um, graduated from Stanford Business School, which is really like a hotbed of entrepreneurship. And it was a very egalitarian experience. And when I first went to fundraise for this business, I was going into funds where I knew senior people at the funds. And it went from having been in California as a classmate and a peer and a colleague to feeling like I had stumbled into you know a seventh grade locker room. And I was listening wow. to those conversations. So we so yes, it was stunning. You ask me now, 15 years later, I'm a little bit immune, although I still can be horrified with how uh, people say things, <laughs> but it, it, it is pretty remarkable. It, it is very, very remarkable. And if you look at a couple of things that are happening all at the same time, it starts to make a little bit more sense. So you have the total, I think, uh, debacle that is sex education in the US, a subset of states require it, a subset of those don't even require it to be medically or scientifically accurate. They spend more, uh, more states focus on teaching abstinence than they do teaching consent. So that's one bucket. And then there's never been, you know, there's never been a, a, a parade of people dying to talk to their kids about this. It's not an easy topic and no one's ever felt comfortable. The kids don't like it. The parents don't like it. So you have no sex education in the schools or at least subpar. Then you have a conversation that's always been difficult. And then add to that the ubiquity of porn, which has become de facto, you know, se uh, sexual education. So you have people with really jaded perceptions of what pleasure looks like of what consent looks like, of what relationships look like. And so it's no surprise, but it really does seep into everything we do. Um, years ago, there was an article on the front page of the New York Times Magazine section. So it wasn't like a, some fly-by-night publication. And the name of the article was, Unexcited, Is There a Pill for That? And in the article, they talked about how you determine if something works, how, you know, if it's statistically meaningful, if the result someone has seen is a result of the clinical study and is a, is a result of the product or um, catalyst that's being investigated. And there was a line in it that I would never, that I've never forgotten. Um, and it's a while ago, so I am paraphrasing, okay. which it says, you know, you're always looking for the conclusion that the result or improvement or benefit you've seen is related to the product. And that's what they call statistical significance, meaning it's not just the application of the product or the idea of the product, it's the actual use of the product. Right. And in that article, they had a line that said, you know, we don't want there, these things to work too well. And I'm using air quotes now, lest there be sex craze binges of infidelity. Get out of here. Meaning that if a woman were sexually aroused, apparently she would be running rampant in the streets and be a danger to herself and others. You know, and so in the <laughs> article, 
And you can see, I, you have to be tongue in cheek when you're in the space. In the article I wrote, I wasn't aware that there was panic in the streets because men are running around wielding four-hour erections. So, you know, I've always tried to point out the hypocrisy. Um, the challenge really is for companies in the space, many of which I work with, is that you wind up spending a lot of time with your, what I call fighting city hall moment. You know, I'm fighting against the patriarchy. I'm fighting against institutions as opposed to working on activities that are going to drive the awareness, the purchase, the experience, the repurchase, and the growth of my business. So it's not that it's fun to talk about this. You know, everybody in the space has had to go through this at, at one point or another. And, you know, I had experiences last week with a company that I'm working for where identical ads that got approved when it was from a company for men were rejected when it was from a company for women. So this still happens. The ch The challenge is um, how do we get past the this conversation? You know, we know that women get, you know, two to two and a half percent of the venture capital dollars. We know that um, women of color get even less. We know that um, women starting sexual health businesses um, get even less, but there are lots of bright spots. And one of the reasons that I've stayed motivated in the space is because we do continue to see product, product Good. progress. Good. Easy for me to say, we do continue to see progress. So there are now funds specifically focused on investing in diverse farmer, far, diverse founders. There are funds that are focused on creating in diverse founders. There are funds focused on creating, investing and creating businesses in women's health. There are angel groups and angels who as the result of long careers and liquidity events, have the money to invest in this. We're starting to have more conversations about how much wealth the women in the US are going to control and how they are the, what they call the chief medical officers of their families. They're making 80 to 90% of the purchase and the healthcare decisions. So sure. there's growing awareness that you need to be talking to this group of people. You know, I come at it very much from a business perspective you know, I, I have to talk about, you know, the inequity to bring attention so that you can drive fundraising. But ultimately, my objective is to get these products and services in the hands of people whose lives could be better as a result um, of using them. And we're starting to see that happen more and more. You know, I, I always I frequently give this talk called women's health and overnight sensation that's centuries in the making. It right. feels like everywhere you turn now, there's an article about menopause or there's a new company coming in menstrual tracking. And there are, but we still have, so we the momentum is on our side, but we still have a long way to go. And again, as I spoke earlier about what's happened with sex education, there are a bunch of factors at work that are helping our progress right now. One of which is we saw very clearly during COVID that men and women, no news to most people, <laughs> but a lot in the scientific community, that men and women respond differently. They responded differently to COVID. They had different survival rates. And now the narrative that we talk about in women's health is we look at it in three different categories. Okay. Diseases and conditions that affect women only, meaning you have to have the biological, biologically female organs to have ovarian cancer right, or sure. to menstruate or to get pregnant or to have, you know, ovarian cysts, whatever the case may be. Yep. Then there, and that's, that's pretty clear. And for whatever reason that has been dubbed, you know, bikini medicine, because we're only focused on the breasts and, you know, what's in the underwear. 
we are that conversation has expanded dramatically. That's no longer an accurate description of, of what we're talking about and what the kind of businesses we're trying to grow. The second piece is things that affect, affect women primarily. So men get breast cancer, but the majority of breast cancer sufferers are women. So it's not uniquely female, but it is um, in large Mostly. part female. Okay. And obviously the consequences of that, you know, for women getting treatment are different than they are for men. And then the last piece is things that affect women differently, which is essentially everything else. We've now gotten more educated uh, um, to the fact that a heart attack looks different in a woman than it does in a man. Sexual response looks different than it does in a woman or a man. Alzheimer's is much more prevalent in women than in men. We reacted differently to COVID and there are some theories that, you know, estrogen was protective, more protective for women. So we're at least as talking in a framework where we can differentiate these things and not just throw women's health against the wall as one big, you know, complex category. It's a thousand different categories. The other piece that's really been helpful as there are more companies and more investors and more entrepreneurs and more exits um, is this idea that you can't just sell a woman a product. You know, historically, a company would say, she's menstruating, I'm going to sell her tampons or pads. She's trying to get pregnant or she's trying not to get pregnant, I'm going to sell her condoms or a pregnancy test kit or test kit or what have you. Now there's much more, in large part because women are starting these companies, talking about her over the course of her life cycle and, and with the complexities that she brings. So what I mean by that is there's growing conversation around the fact that you can't talk about sexual health without talking about mental health. You oh. can't talk about bone health without talking about cardiac health. You know, it's that old operations game, the hip bones connected to the thigh bone. Right, it's sure. Really the, so those things are all really important in the progress we're making. Uh, as well as continuing to bring attention to the space, continuing to highlight successful funding rounds, continuing to highlight exits, and really talking more broadly about the impact that these diseases can have. So I'll take a breath and then I can swing back to that. But while Rachel is breathing, I'll tell you the name of her book is Orgasmic Leadership, subtitled Profiting from the Coming Surge in Women's Sexual Health and Wellness. Clearly, there's a, a big audience for it. The book became a number one international, international, mind you, bestseller. Rachel Braun Sherl is our guest today. Um, so you were surprised to a certain extent yes. about the double standard. Yes. Uh, yes. And as I read up on you in the book, and my head began to swim, because the last I checked, one out of every two people on this planet are women. Uh, and it just didn't make sense to me. And then I thought, well, okay, maybe this is the way it was since I came from broadcasting you know, 20 years ago in TV and maybe with radio ads. And I can see them at that time shoving you to the 3 a.m. slot. Right. Uh, <laughs> You know, the Playboy After Dark slot. Yeah. Um, but then I thought to myself, well, surely with the advent of the Internet, these big, you know, web entrepreneurs are going to be all about your deal. And <laughs> little did I know as I read on through that these big web portals like WebMD said, no, I will take a pass. WebMD. Uh, Facebook, you were on for a minute and then you were gone. Right. So. So talk to me a little bit about 
you know, pitching this uh, uh, product online and the challenge you, challenges you had, and and is it better now? Yes, but is what I would say the answer is. Yes, okay. we've made a, we've made a lot of progress, and part of that is that a rising tide, you know, lifts all boats, and there's just much more noise. There's a lot more people knocking on the door. There are sure. a lot more people calling, you know, Facebook to task. Um, so yes, it's better, uh, but we started, you know, with a pretty with a pretty low bar. My favorite one, I think, ever was when we reached out to TMZ, which is, you know, the celebrity gossip. Yeah, the show. gossip. Yeah, sure. And you know, they had great ratings and it fit with our demo. And so we reached out to them and they said, I'm sorry, um, you don't pass our standards for what we're willing to put on TV. And well, I wait said, a wait, this is the Kim Kardashian show. Exactly. Is- I said, I-, I don't understand. You have you have everything there. Like you have the Kardashians getting bikini waxes. Like, I don't understand. They said, we're just not comfortable. The next week I happened to be, I'll never forget it. I was working out and I happened to turn the TV on and I see TMZ and they had an episode that had the following topics. Okay. Go ahead. Making fun of Stephen Hawking's disability, like the brilliant scientist. Lovely. Sex with animals, um, (laughs) sex parties, and a few others like that. And I, so I wrote, you know, as they say, a strongly worded email uh, <laughs> that say, you know, I don't know who's making these decisions, but, you know, I'd love to speak to the person who's in charge of saying that a, a clinically proven product that is demonstrated to work and not have side effects um, is inappropriate, but is more damaging than, yeah, you know, sex but with the making horse. fun of, but make, yeah, sex with the horse, making fun of people with disabilities is just somehow okay like uh, on what planet does that make sense my other favorite one is they used to have a a tv station called like soap tv all about soap operas and we got the same pushback and you know back in the day i did watch these soap operas i said you have people sleeping with their brothers on tv and that's a whole season you know (laughs) i don't understand so i had these crazy crazy conversations where you, you know, the old Seinfeld, you think you're in bizarro world. Like what planet am I on that this is okay and this is not okay? And it happened over and over again. And I, I write in the book a lot about the experience of going into primarily um, middle-aged white men, meetings with middle-aged white men who were laughing, they were making jokes and you know, we couldn't get their attention. And, you know, I always tell the story, which I'm sure you saw in the book, where we went into two that were, we had 13 meetings with venture capitalists in two days. And the first two, the first one says, how is it different than Viagra? We, you know, take ourselves very seriously. And we explain um, how the female sexual response system works like this. And the males is more like hydraulic pump and on and on and on. And, you know, when you go into a pitch meeting, you want to get someone's attention. You want them to ask for the next meeting. So we always thought the worst thing would be if they were just silent. Well, it turns out the worst thing is if they're laughing behind their hands and telling stories about what they did to their senior prom date. So yeah. So (laughs) the first one, they said that we answer the question, we leave. Clearly we're not getting money. Go next door to the next one. They ask about our satisfaction study. What does it do for him? We talked about how the, the study was really focused on her um, satisfaction, but that anecdotally, we believed he felt more satisfied because she felt better or he felt like a more 
um, skilled partner and happened to be done on heterosexual couples in long-term relationships. So in between the second and third, um, my business partner, Mary and I, you know, realized we're not going to leave with a dollar, you know, and I had these visions of that big Ed McMahon, like $10 million check that's blown up the size of an apartment building. Um, so we got working out that way. Is yeah. It? Not working out that way. I said, we're not going to leave with like 25 cents to make a phone call if they still even have pay phones. <laughs> so we took a break and we said, you know, and this is what we've done together our whole career, which was build things and develop strategies. And we found that I had a hundred dollar bill on my wallet and it gives us an idea and we start whispering and we develop a strategy and we say, okay, we'll try this two of the next 11 times. It can't go worse than what's happened. We're leaving with nothing. So perhaps this will go better. So we go into the, the room and I slam a hundred dollar bill on the table. And, you know, a lot of these guys like to, you know, take risks and bet, at least that's how they like to think of themselves. So I put the $100 bill down on the table and I said, here's a $100 bill. If anyone asks us a question about the category we can't answer, this $100 is yours. If anyone makes a sexual innuendo that we haven't heard before, this $100 is yours. If anyone makes a joke or says a double entendre that makes us, or says anything at all that makes us blush, this $100 is yours. And then we pause, a pregnant pause for effect and every pun intended. And I said, she likes it more. She wants to have it more. Let's talk about the business model. And what we did in that moment and what that has, what we have subsequently done and continue to do is we said, listen, you want to be embarrassed? Go ahead. We're not embarrassed. Ask us anything. We're serious people here to talk about a serious business for you to make serious money. If you're not comfortable doing it, that's on you. And it really just changed. And that's where, you know, and I write in the book, that's where I didn't know the term because I hadn't met the person yet. But that's when I, looking back, would say I became an orgasmic leader, where you're really owning the conversation, you're determining the tone of it, you're deciding what the what the tempo is going to be, and you're going to be in charge of the conversation that other people are, are nervous about. And it really made a difference and changed how we, how we talked about things. And ultimately we raised, you know, tens of millions of dollars and that was awesome. Uh, but it was, as you said, going back to the beginning, it was really surprising. But in the end, my objective with that company and any company I work with is to figure out how to grow it. And you don't do that trying the same thing over and over again that doesn't work. You know, I think there's an interesting lesson to be taken from the whole thing that is not something that you explicitly talk about in the book. But, you know, to a certain extent, you and your partner, Mary, kind of fell into this. A hundred percent. You know, and and I think the lesson is to always be open uh, to wherever, you know, the opportunities will take you. I have a, a friend who who always says that flexibility is the hallmark of a professional. And <laughs> damn, Rachel, if you didn't have to be really flexible all the time on this thing. Yeah, absolutely. But there was a lot of it that was in our sweet spot. You know, we had built brands before. We had worked in women's businesses from the top of her head to the tips of her toes. You know, we had worked in menstruation and fertility and infertility and hair care and skin care and psoriasis and foot fungus and hemorrhoids. So yeah. we were we were comfortable <laughs> being in the space. What was new was raising money. So picture going out to Silicon Valley, um, you know, 15, 13, 15 years ago, two women who were middle-aged, now we're more middle-aged, um, 
who they consider first-time entrepreneurs because we had never raised money. We had actually run very successful businesses for a long time. Right. right. And three, we're talking about vaginas, you know, like that, that no one's sitting at the, at the reception booth saying, I can't wait for you to come in and talk to me about this. It makes people uncomfortable. And when we, for us, when we saw this opportunity, uh, the product before we got into the bigger one for the category, it just felt like a perfect storm. There were no products that were clinically proven that had, were still in under investigation. 35 of them had been canceled because it's hard clinically to demonstrate um, efficacy in women's sexual response. There was no vocabulary, how much fun to create a conversation Women weren't speaking to their doctors about this. Only three to 5% of obstetricians and gynecologists talked about this at the time. You weren't talking to your mother, sister, friend, partner, because it either felt personal or critical. So there were, and this was an emotionally engaging category. There's nothing, nothing that's more emotionally engaging than sex and intimacy. So for us, it was like, oh my God, you get one opportunity like this in a life to build something, you know, we definitely took a number of blows to the head. There's no question um, about it. And one of the earliest pieces of advice someone gave us is, you know, entrepreneurship is not for the faint of heart. And that sure. was really, and then I would say vagipreneurship is absolutely not for the faint of heart. So there were a lot of surprises. There were a lot of amazing, amazing experiences. There were a lot of things that were very enervating and, you know, not great commentaries on society or the society that we live in. Uh, But on the margin, year after year after year after year, there's so much happening. There's so much opportunity. There's so many new products. There's so much new technology. There's, There's things that people can do. You can extend your fertility. You can, you know, we never would have thought of 20 years ago that companies would pay for the benefit of freezing a person's eggs. It wasn't even in our frame of reference. And we're starting, we see all these things happening. We see companies in the UK starting to provide benefits for menopausal women using the same rationale that they historically use for freezing eggs, which is these are our best and the brightest. They're childbearing age. We don't want to lose them when they have families, or we don't want to lose them because they want to leave to have families and they don't have other options. And now we're saying the same thing about women in menopause. You know, these women have been in the workplace for decades. They probably are at the peak of their ability to contribute. Um, Why wouldn't we want to find a way to make it easier for them to stay? So again, when you talk about how intersectional um, women's health is, it isn't just physical or social, it's financial, it's, it's, it's related to families, it's related to career opportunities. If you leave the workplace, um, you know, for any number of reasons, and you don't have childcare, or you leave because you know it's your last time to get pregnant based on your body chemistry, you know, now we're, we're really just extending what women can do. And that's why I'm really glad that the conversation that's happening now is, you know what, on top of everything else, you can't separate this stuff from our economic, financial, and family potential. This stuff is all connected. The author of Orgasmic Leadership is our guest today, 
Rachel Braun Sherl, and you can find that book anywhere books are sold. It's an international number one bestseller. Um, I'm, I'm going to play this out just a little bit. Uh, as a guy, middle-aged guy, if you came into my office to pitch me this, and, and you know, I, I ran a venture capital firm, let's say. Yeah. And um, yeah, it may be a little bit squirmy on my side, but there would have to be a part of me in the back of my head as a middle-aged heterosexual guy yeah. would say, you know what? This is a good thing. This is a good thing for our side. This could be really helpful because if, if, you know, a third of guys are having for our side, uh, I love that <laughs> are having erectile dysfunction issues. There have to be at least an equal, if not greater number of women that are having some kind of issue. So this is, this could be a really good thing uh did that ever come up in any of these pitch meetings <laughs> it's interesting there, there's two pieces because you said you're a venture capitalist first of all my job when i go in and pitch is yeah. to tell you how you're going to make money my job isn't to say you should invest in women's health because it's the right thing to do or because women are the backbone of families or some other social platitude that you want to give you pass by yeah. all that it's all about yeah. the dollars right so you know i would go in and say a million over a billion women will be in menopause in 2025, 50% of the universe. Um, what would often happen is they would still say that's a niche, or we would go in with the first company I was in in the space and say, share the commonly shared statistic that 43% of women at some point in their life have sexual concerns and difficulties, which is, by the way, 40% more than the percentage of men who are diagnosed with erectile dysfunction. Right. But put okay. that aside for a minute, the answer I would get was, well, my wife or girlfriend has never complained. Get out of here. Oh my gosh. And you can ask a hundred entrepreneurs that I've met with, you know, oh, really? Um, this condom, this new condom technology won't work. It's not big enough for me. And, you know, the entrepreneur would put six large lemons in it to show, listen, buddy, whatever you're fantasizing about, this will fit. It, it became, you know, in venture capital, and obviously lots of folks have an industry focus, um, what I've noticed over and over again, and lots of people in the space have commented on, is when I go into a venture capitalist, if I am showing you software as a service or cybersecurity for international governments, you can understand how it could be an enormous opportunity, even if you're never going to be a customer. Somehow, when you go in and talk women's health, you have to get over the embarrassment factor for the people you're speaking to. You have to convince them of an opportunity that is so clearly enormous and you have to figure out a way to make it personal. So if you would go in with a fertility company and we've heard this from lots of entrepreneurs and I've been in the rooms when this happened, if anyone in that room had a sister, daughter, aunt, cousin who had struggled with infertility, now it's a business. Now it's a business because it affects me personally. And that is a hurdle that is very difficult to get over because you have to just be lucky with who's in the room because the evaluation is no longer about the opportunity. It's about the person's specific experience. And I just have to Personal give you one, bias. Yeah, one example of this. I was on a panel recently with a bunch of, you know, really amazing entrepreneurs, legal experts in the space, industry experts, and um, a gentleman who worked in incontinence. And his comment was, you have to make incontinence relevant to the man. 
And then he proceeds to say, if your wife's incontinent, first of all, assuming every man is in a heterosexual relationship. So let, let's put that aside for a second. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if your wife has incontinence, she can't go see a movie with you. She won't be able to go to a show or a play because of all the things, you know, a lot of anxiety yeah. around um, incontinence. And I said, you know, I, you know, I appreciate your point of view, but with all due respect, I'm never going to have prostate cancer. Never, ever, ever. Never going to have a prostate, never going to have cancer of the prostate. That doesn't prevent me from understanding how disruptive that could be, how concerning it could be, how scary it could be, how dangerous it could be. I'm not going to have it, but I don't need to have it to be able to understand that this is a big problem. So when you add that on top of everything else, you know, I found the only way I can stay in this space as long as I have and enjoy it is you just have to keep a sense of humor. Like you're saying that out loud, repeat it back and, and see to yourself, does that make sense? Because it's, it's illogical. If you don't experience it, it's not an opportunity. And normally you would think these guys, smart guys, uh, or they wouldn't be where they are, are used to pouring over data and research and spreadsheets. And you're hearing, well, you know, my wife has no problem. It's just, right. The whole thing I, is, is a head scratcher. Yeah, and I wrote in the book and I wrote in the book that I couldn't say it in a meeting. What I wanted to say in the meeting is, you know, I promise you it's not because you're such a gifted craftsman in the bedroom. It's because she either doesn't have the language or, you know, she's embarrassed or she doesn't think you'll take it well. Um, But in the book, I actually said how often that I wanted to say that because we were even interviewing one VC who said, I'm the queen, I'm the king of sexual pleasure. And I, my business partner and I look at each other and we're like, done. This guy's not for us. We don't need to know anything else. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, can you imagine you go into business with that guy? What a nightmare. Right. Orgasmic exactly. Leadership is the name of the book. The subtitle, which I love, is uh, Profiting from the Coming Surge in Women's Sexual Health and Wellness. Rachel Bronchurl is our guest. And I had a, a very similar experience to the one that you did when things began to turn. And um, the way, if I understand it correctly, that things began to turn and things began to open up for you with this product is that after banging your head against the wall, trying to spend gobs of money to buy advertising. Finally, the New York times ran a story about, uh, you know, the trouble you're having and then kind of the floodgates open, you know, this product, which is called Zestra, um, you know, it comes up on the view and then on good morning America. And you're at that point, you're kind of off to the races. And I think what a lot of people uh, don't realize th- that are not in, in, you know, the marketing industry is that the advertising side uh, really doesn't have anything to do with the editorial or the entertainment side. So basically it, if, if I have this correct, you couldn't buy the advertising, but the editorial, the entertainment people said, well, this is an interesting story. We're going to cover that anyway. Yeah. The, the story we heard, cause Ashley Banfield was at ABC news at the time right. is that she was traveling and someone had already seen the art, seen the article and, and thought it might be a good story for her. And she had seen it, I guess the paper, that's how long ago it was, it gotten delivered to her hotel room. And on the plane back, she decided that she wanted to do a story on it and got back and, you know, found that they wanted her to do a story on it too. And what was amazing about 
the media coverage that we got is it was essentially paid advertising. We could talk about the product. We could talk mm -hmm. about the safety. We could talk about the clinical um, support that it had. And we could talk about how users experienced it. Good morning, America. You know, it seems it, it, it seems to be that would be a great fit for them or or the view. Certainly, it seems that that's as hand in glove for what you do. And and yet it took how long of you trying to buy advertising before finally that New York Times story ran and it changed? I would say a little over a year trying to get our ads and doing different ads and submitting different things and meeting with lawyers at networks a year to a year and a half and then three PR firms. And it was the third one. We kept saying, this is a story. The fact that we can't buy advertising, this has got to be a story. So wow. I'm going to say it was two years. Crazy. You now have a podcast. Uh, at least I think you're still doing the, the yep. business of the V. Is that still a thing? Yeah, it's still a thing. And and on that podcast, you sort of talk about these these patient concerns of, of women and uh, and and you have lots of expert guests. You have a physician that you co-host it with. Yeah. Um, is, is that freeing for you in some way, having gone through the gauntlet of, you know, trying to get the word out about these products. And, and now, you know, you have the, you get the bully pulpit now, Rachel. It's interesting. If you say freeing, I, I never felt constrained in the sense that I was going to give up. Wow. So I, you know, oh, a lot of people would have, right. You know, yeah. you're probably in the minority there, but the people who are attracted to the space, they don't, they're really some of the most spectacularly interesting, disciplined, creative, brave people that I know. So I'd say my reaction to doing the podcast is I'm happy I stayed in this space long enough until there's an audience, you know, so, such that now there is an audience. And right. now people are asking us to be on the show and asking us to sponsor. So that really feels good to have sort of lived through the valley. Um, and now that women's health is on the upswing, that there's so much interest came out of the other side the uh, the podcast if you want to check out rachel bronchel's podcast again it's called the business of the v the book is orgasmic leadership and um in the last couple of minutes that we have here before we have to wrap up you know you had a, a difficult time with a woman's product mm -hmm. um but what <clears> i see is <throat> i travel about the country and work in different business areas is there still seems to be uh, a lot of inequality in other sectors out there. Uh, you know, there still don't seem to be, uh, you know, I'm at a university today recording the podcast, as many uh, STEM students here. Um, I think I don't see as many women in tech in general out there. And um, I wonder if, if you've got thoughts on that and if that, is important to you at all, or are you solely focused on, on female health? Yeah, it's important to me. You can't be in this space without coming face to face with some of the real societal issues, you know, at play. And one of the big reasons that we've made progress is because there are people on the ground changing rules that appear to be unfair, like you have to know what's in your Cheerios, but historically in many states, no one had to tell you what was in a tampon that you're going to insert vaginally. What is happening is there are so many programs. We're getting better in terms of, you know, you, you look at um, 
enrollment at colleges and business schools and professional schools, and women are 50% or more. What happens as you travel further into your career, when the realities of raising a family and the myriad of challenges associated with that, whether it's financial or health or learning or whatever the case may be, you know, we still do see quite a substantial number of women step out. We also saw during COVID when you would talk about now everybody's at home, that still the lion's share of the work um, fell to the woman. So yeah, I think it's systemic. It's not just how we approach women's health. I never like to talk about it from the perspective of, you know, that, you know, we're whining about it. What I like to do is say, here's the reality. You're less likely to raise money if you go into a venture capitalist, capitalist office as a woman. Be prepared. So what does that mean? You have to know more. You have to be better. You have to have a more buttoned up business plan. It might be fair. It might be unfair, but know the reality that you're going into. So I do think things are so much better in many areas. There are all kinds of STEM programs at the college level, um, at the company level, you know, women's initiatives. They're everybody and their, their mother has one. The ones that in my mind will be successful, and there are companies doing this now, are the ones that demonstrate the benefit it has to the business. So if I'm doing a better job managing, helping women have resources to manage their family creation, whether it's surrogacy or egg freezing or pregnancy or high-risk pregnancy, whatever the case may be, there are companies now who have data that say, when we do it this way, with this kind of support and these kinds of services, people miss less work. Hmm. We have lower turnover. We have higher morale. So for me, the, the real focus has to be on, you know, for better or worse, the economic motivation. And lots of companies, especially in the maternal health space, are now demonstrating those metrics. And we also see all the, the data that suggests that you know, companies with diverse leadership and diverse founders and diverse workforces do better financially. So there are other factors to, that are helping. So we are making progress. I don't want to in any way suggest that we're where we were 15 years ago. Are there challenges? Yes. And as I said, when you break down diverse founders or diverse employees, and then you add skin color and cultural background and sexual orientation, or preference, you know, it gets harder and harder, but we're talking about it now. Does it help when, when high profile uh, women get involved? Absolutely. Okay. Athletes, actresses. A hundred percent. So now, you know, Naomi Watts is in, is part of a menopause company. Serena Williams is vested in the menopause company. Courtney Cox from Friends, who was the first person to say tampon on TV a million years ago, came out and talked about menopause a thousand percent in this world where all of our information is from, you know, TikTok or Instagram, it a hundred percent helps when someone else creates the conversation. The hardest part is starting it. Once you start right. any of these people jump on board. We often use this expression when we were presenting um, to groups, it was almost like, you know, we felt like we we're going to be trampled like at a who concert when you <laughs> put the right message in front of the right group in the right setting. There's incredible interest in all this stuff. And I, I, again, I just think it's, we need 
progress from all sides. So we need legislative change. We need regulatory change. We need companies focused on this. We need the data that supports how beneficial this is because we can't expect people to do it for better or worse. We can't expect companies to act or we haven't historically expected companies to act just because it's the right thing. So, so make it easy. Gotta... Yeah, connect it to the business results. And somebody's got to put their the first foot out there and and start that walk. Um, and there are lots you, of feet now walking, which I'm very happy about. Well, and I love the fact that that you know it's not this conversation is not all doom and gloom, and that right. you're seeing significant progress. Um, I, I do wonder for you personally and for your business partner. You said her name is Mary, right? Mary. Yeah. Um, when you look back on on the struggle that you guys have with this, uh, is it? And just between us, <laughs> just between us, just okay. between us. Is it's it like hard people would for, say on Oprah, I've never said this before. Nobody I've never knows. said this before, just between us. Is it hard for you to look at, at successful men now and not just feel vomit come up in the back of your throat a little bit? Ugh, ugh. I mean, I, I just can't imagine that, that you don't um, look at, at all guys a little bit differently now with the side eye. So it's interesting that my general answer is no, I don't think that way. I'll tell you when I do. It's when there are um, entrepreneurs who have had spectacular failures and lost hundreds of millions of dollars and then are able to raise money a second time. They get a pass on it. They get a pass on it. <laughs> yeah. That's the situation that bothers me. You know, I think progress is good for everybody. And we need a lot of men in this space because, um, you know, they're, they're, 50% of the population also, they're part of lots of relationships. It's not us against them. What, what, but, you know, that was a very visual and visceral description you just gave. I don't feel resentful because I don't think you can be positive and work in business if you carry that around. But when it does really irk me is when, again, what I said, when someone has a colossal failure or is known for being evil and everybody quit because of sexual harassment and they, you know, raise a hundred million dollars in an afternoon. That makes me a little nuts. Understandable. Rachel Braun Sherl is the author of Orgasmic Leadership, Profiting from the Coming Surge in Women's Health, uh, Sexual Health and Wellness. It's an international bestseller and uh, it's available wherever books are sold. If people want to check out the book or the podcast, uh, make it easy for them. Where do they go? So anywhere you listen to podcasts, it's called Business of the V, no spaces. Um, it's on Spotify, it's on Apple, it's everywhere. And the book is available um, under the name Orgasmic Leadership uh, on Amazon. That's our, and it's available in lots of different forms. So if you put up, sometimes even you just have to write vagina and I might show up, but Orgasmic Leadership or Business of the V um, and my name and the book should appear. She's synonymous with the word vagina. I love it. <laughs> Rachel Braun, Cheryl, thanks for being here. Hey, listen, keep fighting the good fight, would you? Well, thank you so much. And I uh, learned a lot about being a podcast host by having this experience with you. So thank you. My pleasure. That's Rachel Braun, Cheryl. And if you want to check out the book or the podcast, we encourage you to do so. She's doing good stuff. Thank you so much for making us a part of your day. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, tell a friend, subscribe, spread the word. Thank you so much for being a part of our day as well. Wherever you go, whatever you do, make it a great day. Thanks for listening. Bye, everybody.